1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In a continuing effort to pattern our lives and our love for each other after the perfect pattern of Jesus is set forth in Scripture, the elders have asked Kyle to examine the Scriptures today and the next three Sundays in regard to race, how God expects us to treat and regard one another, and what our responsibility is as Christians when it comes to this issue. With an election in our immediate horizon, we understand that regardless of the results, Almost half our nation's population will be disappointed with the results. We're witnessing strife and division in our country, and it's our prayerful plea that we as the body of Christ in Buford continue to be united through the blood of Jesus Christ, and that we demonstrate to the world how our love for one another can overcome all of our racial, cultural, ethnic, and political differences. Please join with us as we begin this study today and continue the next three Sunday mornings. We also invite you to join us on Sunday evening, October 18th, when we have a forum with open discussion on relevant issues facing the church and our nation. We thank you. So today marks the 213th Sunday that I've been employed as the pulpit minister for the Buford Church of Christ. In that time, this will be my 175th Sunday morning sermon presented here, and it will introduce the 30th sermon series that I have presented here. And as I crunched those numbers this week, and it took me a while because I'm not good with numbers, as I crunched those numbers this week, I realized that today I preach my riskiest sermon. It's risky not because of its content, because I believe today and in the following three Sundays, you'll, you'll discover that everything I have to say is biblical. I strive to always have everything that is presented up here be biblical. If I didn't, I wouldn't have a job. But it's risky because of the subject matter. It's risky because we're going to talk about something that is so culturally sensitive, but so important for us to talk about. And so this morning we're going to launch into this new series that I've entitled Colorblind, but before we go any further, I have a few disclaimers that I want to go through. I don't normally do this, but I feel there's some things I need to say up front so that we all get on the same page and so that we're all comfortable on that page and so that you kind of know where I'm coming from as we get started. And this might take a few minutes. Uh, this might be like a Ben Hogan sermon introduction, but just bear with me. I, lo I love you, brother. <laughs> now, I, I love Ben. I, I, I love Ben. I love it when he preaches because it makes my sermon seem shorter. So I'm thankful to Ben. And you know what Ben would say? We have a guest over here named Jeremy Payton. He would say that Jeremy makes his sermons look shorter. So, <laughs> Disclaimer number one, let me tell you about the title of the series. I've called it Colorblind, and I realize 
that just using that terminology can be insensitive, maybe even offensive. But let me explain why I chose it. Do you remember our theme for this year? You know, at the beginning of every year, we introduce a theme that we intend to help guide some of our sermon series, that that we hope will guide some of our Bible classes, that will even guide some of our ministerial efforts. It's been a rough year, but do you remember what the theme was at the start of the year? 2020 vision. 2020 vision. And the idea was that the tagline that went with this was focusing on what really matters. Now, if you go back to the start of the year, the very first sermon series we did was called Blindfolds. And the whole idea of the sermon series was simply to to examine the mindsets, the attitudes, the preconceived ideas that we might have that keep us from seeing what really matters. It was geared towards that vision theme. You may recall our summer series. Over the, over the course of June, July, and August, we did a series on the Minor Prophets that was called Hindsight, and it was intended for us to look back at the messages those Minor Prophets presented to their original audience and apply it to today. And we just concluded a series on a study of the book of Philippians called Finding Joy in the Journey. Again, another series that emphasized uh, what we see. It emphasized vision. It emphasized noticing joy in some scenarios that might not really be that joyous. In keeping with that theme of vision, I chose to go with the term colorblind. But it is not my intent to imply with this word that we should not recognize or acknowledge or celebrate our differences. Instead, it's my intent with this word to imply that we should focus on seeing souls rather than skin. Disclaimer number two, I want to talk about the timing of this series. Events unfolded earlier in this year that brought the issue of race to the forefront of our social conscience. And I know some of you might think that would have been the most opportune time to address this series because it it affected us in so many ways. And, And it would have been a great time to introduce this series, but I chose to postpone it for a few reasons. Number one, I had already launched the study of Philippians, and I didn't want to interrupt that. I wanted to finish that before we moved to a new series. Number two, I needed time to learn. I needed time to study. I needed time to converse. Because, let's face it, I I come at this subject from a particular perspective, from a particular point of view, just because of my race. And I needed to do some time where I learned from others, where I talked with others, where I listened to others. And the third reason I delayed it is because I knew what would inevitably happen. Back in May, we were all, all, to some degree, sensitive to the subject. But I knew what would happen is that as time went on, we would harden. Some of us would become callous to the issues again. And it's when our hearts get hard that they need to be pricked again. And so, by saving this series till a later date, we're able to address it when it's no longer something that everybody is sensitive towards. And we need to be challenged sometimes. It was not my intent to to, uh, put it up next to the election. And that brings me to my third disclaimer. The goal of this series is not to address what our government does. 
The goal of this series is not to indicate how society needs to deal with this issue. It's not my intent to promote any particular political agenda, organization, or cause. It is my intent to speak to the church. To examine what the Bible says about issues pertaining to equality and unity and Christian responsibility. And here's the thing, by the end of this series, I expect some of you may be disappointed. Some of you may wish that I had said more on this subject or wish that I had been more direct and specific about certain aspects of this subject. Others of you may think that I've put too much emphasis on this subject or that it was unnecessary for me to address this subject at all. And still there will probably be others of you who are going to leave this series assuming that it wasn't for you. You're going to assume that I wasn't addressing you, that this had no impact for you whatsoever because you believe you're innocent when it comes to issues related to racism. Let me just say that my responsibility as a preacher is not to appease your sensibilities. My responsibility is to preach the whole counsel of God. And therefore, the objective of this series is simply to be biblical about a relevant cultural issue. That's the scope of this series. And one final disclaimer. It's a disclaimer about me. I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert in law. I'm not an expert in philosophy. I'm not an expert in sociology. I'm not an expert in civil rights. I don't even consider myself an expert in theology. All I am is a student of the Bible. And I believe the Bible has something to say about every issue we face in this life, including this one. So I unapologetically hope this series challenges you to examine yourself, to see if your attitudes, mindsets, and intentions are in keeping with the Bible's teachings. But I also ask for your grace. Because I'm certain that at some point I may say something incorrectly, or I may, say some, or I may not be as clear in my communication as I intend to be. And I ask if I say something that confuses or concerns you, Not if it challenges you. I hope it challenges you. But if I say something that confuses or concerns you, I hope that you'll either extend me some grace based on the years you've listened to me from this pulpit, or you'll kindly approach me for clarification. With that being said, I want to begin this series by getting to the root of the problem when it comes to racism and prejudice and bigotry. I believe that the root of the problem is our failure to see like God sees. Let me explain what I mean. God sees people differently than you and I do. Think for a moment how Scripture kind of describes God's vision of people. First and foremost, when we go to the Bible, we'll discover that God sees people based on their potential, not their problems. Open up to Judges chapter 6. We have the story of Gideon. We have the introduction of Gideon. Gideon Gideon is a fantastic character in Scripture. And what I find so fascinating about the outset of Gideon's story is that if you look at Judges chapter 6 and verse 12, Gideon is given a title by the angel of the Lord who appears to him. So the first time God addressed Gideon via this angel, he called him a mighty warrior. 
Now, wouldn't you like to be known by God as a mighty warrior? Wouldn't that be a fantastic title to receive from the Lord God Almighty? But what's weird to me, what's so strange about this story, is that there's nothing about Gideon in Judges chapter 6 that warrants the title. So as we go through this chapter, I want you to think about our first look at Gideon. First thing I notice about Gideon is he's kind of a coward. Here he is in Judges chapter 6, and, and where is he working? He's working in secret. He's working, working in a hidden location. Why? Because he's afraid of the Midianites. The, the Midianites have been this enemy nation who has terrorized Israel for quite some time. They will show up and steal everything they have, particularly at the end of an agricultural season. And here Gideon is fulfilling his agricultural duties, and yet we're told here in Judges chapter 6, in particular in verse 11, that he was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. He's working in secret because he doesn't want the Midianites to come take what he has. Now that doesn't sound too cowardly. That sounds a little more practical. I get that. But couple that working in secret mindset that Gideon is operating from with his very first assignment that occurs here later in Judges chapter 6. Looking towards the end of the chapter, you'll see that he was commissioned by God to destroy all the idolatrous items in his father's community. And in Judges chapter 6 and verse 27, we're told that he fulfilled that task. But he did so at night. He waited till it got dark to go fulfill the assignment of the Lord. Why? Judges chapter 6 and verse 27. Because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town. Now that's cowardly to some degree. So the first impression I get of Gideon is he's, he's kind of scared. He's kind of afraid. In fact, if you look at the story, he's going to ask God for multiple signs to prove that God's going to be with him, I think, in some degree, because of his struggle with fear. And so the first impression of Gideon, for me, is not one of a mighty warrior, but one of someone who's afraid. And then it's also interesting that Gideon comes across as a pessimist. When the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, look at what he says in Judges chapter 6 and verses 12 through 13. He asks a rhetorical question. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our Father has recounted to us? And then look at what he claimed there at the end of verse 13. He claimed that the Lord has forsaken us. Gideon's words seemed to indicate that he had adopted a defeatist mentality and that he no longer viewed the Israelites as God's special people. So no, not only is he struggling with fear, but he's struggling with negativity. He's a pessimist. On top of that, he's incredibly timid, incredibly self-deprecating. When God presented his mission for Gideon, Gideon questioned his own ability to fulfill it. In verse 15, he said, How can I save Israel? To him it seemed impossible that he could be the hero because, as verse 15 says, his clan was the weakest in Manasseh, and he was the least in his father's house. 
You see, when we look at Gideon here in the introductory verses of his story, he's fearful, he's pessimistic, and he doesn't think very highly of himself. None of those qualities sounds to me like a mighty warrior. So why then does God initiate a conversation with Gideon and call him a mighty warrior? I think it's because God's not looking at his limitations. God's looking at his potential. Maybe God can see the potential in Gideon for obedience. Gideon is going to do one thing really well, and that's obey God. He's going to follow God's directions perfectly. He's going to take an army of 32,000 men and dwindle it down to 300, and he's not going to complain, and he's not going to whine, and he's not going to second guess. He's going to march into battle with torches and jars and trumpets, and he's not going to complain, and he's not going to whine, and he's not going to second guess, even though he has no weaponry whatsoever. Maybe God could see in Gideon the potential for complete obedience, something that lacked in other leaders of the nation of Israel. Maybe he could also see in Gideon the potential for humility. One of the things that I think goes unnoticed about Gideon sometimes is that when his military campaign concluded, the Israelites begged him to become their king. In Judges chapter 8 and verse 22, they said, Rule over us, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon refused. He's been asked to be king, and he turns it down. His response in Judges chapter 8 and verse 23 is this. I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Maybe God could see in Gideon the humility necessary for a leader like this. My whole point is this. God can see in people potential, not just problems. God can see the best in people, not just the worst. When God looks at us, he's not just looking at all the mistakes we've made and all the flaws we have. He's also looking at all the good that's there as well. For we are his workmanship, as Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says. We're created in Christ for good works that he has planned for us. God can see the best in us, not just the worst. But that's not all God sees. God also sees people based on the internal rather than the external. I want you to think about King Saul and King David. King Saul was appointed the first king over Israel because the people rejected God as their king ultimately. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 8, I believe it is. And, and, and what we have here is a request by, by the nation of Israel for someone to be appointed king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 5, their reason for wanting a human to be appointed king was so that they could be like all the other nations. Oh, that horrible human trap of comparison. Wanting to be like everybody else drove them to reject God and to request Saul. Now, God does the picking here. God chooses Saul to be the first king. But I, but I want you to consider the qualifications that Saul brought to the table. The number one qualification Saul brought to the table was his appearance. In 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 2, we're told that he was the most handsome and tallest man in all the land. 
In fact, when Samuel presented him to the people in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 24, this is what Samuel said. He said, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? That there is no one like him among all the people. In other words, Saul brought the look of a king. He looked like royalty from the exterior. He was the ideal candidate to sit on the throne of Israel because he looked the part. But time would show that Saul, he may have possessed the external attributes you wanted in a king, but his disobedience made it apparent that he lacked the internal characteristics you wanted in a king. That's where David entered the story. On the surface, David, there was nothing about him that would impress anybody. He was the opposite of Saul in that he didn't look the part of a king. Samuel described him as ruddy. That, that's a reference to reddish color. It's probably an indicator that he, he was tan because he worked out in the field with those, those animals. He referred to him as bright-eyed and handsome. Now, it's great that David's handsome, but he's not described as more handsome than anybody else in the land. David didn't possess all those external qualities that Saul possessed. He wasn't taller than everybody else. In fact, remember when he went to slay David, he couldn't even, he couldn't even utilize Saul's armor because it was too big for him. David didn't come from a really wealthy family or anything. He was a shepherd. In fact, David was so overlooked that when his dad assembled children to appear before Samuel as potential kings, as potential selections to be anointed, dad didn't even worry about getting David. In other words, David's own dad didn't think he was king material. He didn't even summon him from the fields. He's not ready. He's not good enough. All these other boys, that's what you want. But when Samuel stood before all those boys of Jesse, God told him what the problem was. We read it with our scripture reading a moment ago, 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. God informed Samuel that he shouldn't look at his appearance. Do not look at his, on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. What we learn right there from David's stories, particularly in comparison to Saul, is that too often we focus on external attributes. We focus on, on, on what we can see with our physical eye, and God's looking elsewhere. God's looking deep into your soul. He's looking at your heart. He's looking at the internal. We need to see like God sees. We need to be focused on, on, on souls, not skin, as I mentioned earlier. We need to be focused on the internal, not the external. We need to start seeing like God sees. And, so, and because God sees potential, and because God sees one's heart, those descriptions allow the Bible to assert that God is impartial. To be impartial means to treat everybody equal. This attribute of God is communicated in Scripture through the following ways. You can go to Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, as Peter is in the house of Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. Peter says this, God shows no partiality, 
but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Later, Paul would write, both in Romans chapter 2 and verse 11 and in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6, both of which are passages where he's dealing with the Jew and Gentile issues. Romans chapter 2 and verse 11 and Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6, both passages. Paul simply says, God shows no partiality. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45 that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And that is an indicator of God's impartial nature. So we can affirm that God is impartial based on what the Bible says about him, but the real challenge, the real challenge arises when we consider the fact that because God is impartial, we must be too. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 calls on us to be imitators of God. And if we're going to be imitators of God, then we must strive to see people as equals just like he does. But here's the problem. We can't see people's potential. And we can't see people's hearts. So on what basis are we going to start seeing people impartially like God does? Well, let me share with you two ways that our vision should be impacted. We should see everyone as equal because everyone is created by God. I want you to journey over to Genesis chapter 1 with me. I want you to read a passage that you're familiar with, I'm I'm most certain. It's Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Let's read that together for just a moment. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Now there are two important truths, two important observations to make from this account that impact our understanding of equality. First, it's important to note that humanity is not broken down into kinds. Let me explain what I mean. If you journey through the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, you'll discover that God created most living things according to its kind. In chapter 1, verse 11, we're told that God created vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees, each according to its kind. In verse 21, we read that God created the great sea creatures according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. In verse 25, we're told that God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. But when God created human beings, He didn't make kinds. In other words, there are not different kinds of humans. There is only one kind of human. And Paul summarized this well in Acts chapter 17 and verse 26 when he was speaking before the Areopagus in Athens. He said, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. That statement indicates that the human family is one. There are not kinds. We are all united as one. There is one human race. And from that, we need to see that we are equal. But you know, when you look at the creation account, there's something else worth noticing. 
That is the fact that when God created mankind, he placed within them his own image. Journey through Genesis chapter 1 and tell me what other living creature received the image of God. Go ahead. Did any other created thing receive the image of God besides mankind? No. We receive something that God reserves solely for human beings. His image. Now we can debate what that image refers to, whether it be free will or whether it be our spirit or whether it be um, the, the... jurisdiction over creation. There's all these different ideas about what that image entails. But we don't need to discuss that. That's not important to today's study. What's important is that human beings receive something significant and special from God that's unique in all of creation. And because there's only one kind of human being, that means that every one of us received it. God decided to create an image bearer, a creature that would possess his likeness on the earth. And so everyone who is an image bearer is equal because we all have the image of God. So my point is simply this. We need to realize that in creation... God didn't separate out humans in unique compartments. He didn't give us kinds to work with. He gave us one kind. And God instilled within mankind his spirit that every one of us possesses. And if we can't see equality in creation then I wonder if that's an offense against God, the Creator. Today, as we begin this series, the first thing I really want you to grasp is that we're all equal because God created us. But we're also all equal because God loves us. I think this biblical truth was one aspect of God's character that Jonah couldn't wrap his mind around. Everyone remembers that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, but oftentimes we fail to fully comprehend the reason he didn't want to go there. Because you really don't find it out until the fourth chapter, and most of the time when we study the book of Jonah, we like to end at the chapter three. We don't, we don't really want to roll over into chapter four. But when you get to the end of Jonah, and the city of Nineveh is spared by the mercy of God, you find out that it made Jonah quite angry. So look at Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10 says that God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to Nineveh, and he did not do it. Now that ends chapter 3. Look at chapter 4 verse 1. Look at how the story continues. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now why was Jonah angry? Well, let's just keep reading in Jonah chapter 4. Look at verse 2 and 3. Oh, this is what Jonah said. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, 
slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So he just listed off these attributes of God that are beautiful, that we celebrate, that we worship him for. And then in verse 3, he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. All right, God, you're good, but it's better for me to die. That doesn't add up, does it? So let's put some pieces together about Jonah. Let's figure out what Jonah's really dealing with here that's making him so upset. I don't think he's upset because God is God. I think he's upset because of something else. So if you journey back to chapter 1 of Jonah, you remember he got in a boat and he went the other way. Nineveh was to his east, but he set sail for Tarshish, which was to his west. A storm rose. And the people on board that boat begin casting lots to determine who was the cause of the storm. And they figured out it must be Jonah. So if you look at Jonah chapter 1, I believe it's verse 8. There's a series of questions those sailors aboard that boat are going to ask Jonah. They say, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? They're asking, who are you? What's your job? Where are you from? What's your nationality? What's your ethnicity? That's the order they ask it in. But I want you to notice the order in which Jonah answers. See, if we were answering that question, we would tend to say, well, my name is Kyle. Um, I'm a prophet of God. Um, yeah, I, I'm running away. I'm, I'm from uh, Israel. Uh, you know, we would answer it in, in the order it was asked. Jonah doesn't answer in the order it's asked. Look at verse 9. Look at how he answers. The first words out of his mouth are, I am a Hebrew. I am a Hebrew. And it's only after he declares that that he talks about God. I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. It's like his faith took a back seat to his nationality. His ethnicity. His people of origin. So it comes across to me like Jonah desired the good of people like him more than he desired to take the good news to people who were not like him. In other words, he didn't care, he didn't share God's concern for the world. So, in my opinion, Jonah failed to see the Ninevites as his equals because he didn't think they deserved God's love. He knew God was merciful, that God was loving, that God would relent. And he didn't want that for the Ninevites. He didn't want the good and perfect attributes of God to be poured out on somebody else that he despised. So he didn't go there initially. And once he did go there, he got upset because God was God. See, here's the thing about God. God loves unconditionally. What I mean is that God's love is poured out on every living person, regardless of whether or not they deserve it. Just think about what Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus didn't say that God so loved Christians. 
or God so loved the church, or God so loved those who obey him. Jesus said God so loved the world. That's all-inclusive. That includes those who obey him as well as those who disobey him. That includes those who praise him and those who mock him. That includes those who accept him and those who reject him. That includes those who love him and those who hate him. Now, does that mean that everyone's going to be saved? No. God's love is also matched by his righteousness and his justice. So while his love is unconditional, salvation is not. But what this passage tells us in John chapter 3 and verse 16 is that there is nobody on the face of this earth that is outside the scope of God's love. So let's put that in the framework of our conversation in this study. That means every one of us is equal because every one of us is loved by God to the same degree. There is no person loved more by God than another person. We are equal when it comes to the love God has poured out toward us. And nowhere is that more evident than at the cross. Because at the cross, Christ died for every one of us. And so that when we, when we become a child of God, when we become a part of the community of faith, when we become a believer, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. All of those external classifications go away because under the love of God and in the blood of Christ, we are all united and equal. And it's beautiful. We need to start seeing people the way God sees people. With the same impartiality that God sees people. Many of you probably already do. But I know from personal experience and from listening to others that some don't. And that's got to change. Because here's the thing about heaven. If you'll allow me to use this term, heaven will be absolutely colorblind. Because these physical bodies don't go there. These physical bodies become worm food. We'll be raised with the new, glorious body. And the things that we allow to divide us here won't go there. So we need to start seeing each other as equals, just like God does. Let me share this poem with you. It's called The Touch of the Master's Hand. You may have heard it. It's written by a, someone named Myra Welch. And it goes like this. "'Twas battered and scarred in the auctioneer, thought it scarcely worth its while to waste much time on the old violin, but held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, 
than two? Only two? Two dollars, and who will make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loosened strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars, and who will make it two? Two thousand, and who will make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried. We do not quite understand. What changed this worth? And swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. I share that poem with you today to remind us that our value doesn't come from external things. Our value doesn't come from our appearance. Our value comes from the Master, the one who created us in His image, and the one who loved us so much that He died for us, each and every one of us. And so we begin here today. There's three more weeks to this series. But we start here. We start here. Because if everyone is equal, if we can understand that all of us are equal, then there is no basis for racism, prejudice, discrimination, or bigotry. Biblically speaking. So as we introduce this series in which we're going to study the Bible's call for unity in the midst of diversity, this is where we start. By holding up the biblical truth that we're all equal. And we have to accept this biblical truth before we address anything else. So as we bring this lesson to a close, I hope you'll plan to join us for the next three weeks. And I hope you'll pray for me that God will guide my study so that I communicate His will for us. And I pray that you come with open hearts, willing to listen and willing to apply what we talk about to yourself. Don't just assume this isn't an issue you don't have to hear about because I assumed that for too many years. I assumed that for far too long until I sat down with some brothers and had my eyes open. Today, we talked about God's love. God indeed loves every one of us. So much so that He sent Christ to die for us. It may be that the most important thing you can do in your life right now is to give your life to Him. To acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God. To repent of your sins and to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Maybe that's where you need to start today before we go any further in this series 
Maybe you need to make the decision that you're going to be a child of God and live according to His standards and expectations from here on out. Because the other thing about this series is it starts with us accepting the authority of God. Maybe you need to do that today. Or maybe as we start this series, you're doing a little self-analyzation. Maybe you already understand that, that there are mistakes you've made in your life, particularly in this arena, and you want to go ahead and clean the slate. You want to go ahead and acknowledge your failures, or, or, or maybe you want to seek help and prayers of this brotherhood to, to help you pursue unity in all matters. Maybe you realize that you're not a contributor to unity in the body of Christ, and you need to start by acknowledging that there's change that needs to be made. I don't know what your need is, but the God who can see your heart does. And maybe you need to start by opening your heart to him today, whether by becoming his child or returning to him as an errant child. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come while together we